Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. Joan O'Sara, one of our favorites to chat with, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering business and has a column out today on Oracle TikTok and how that deal is pouring what he's calling the Trump toxin into capitalism. Definitely want to ask him about that. But first, Joe, what do you make of the fact, I know it's off topic, but Jersey is raising taxes on people making more than $1 million. We saw back in 2018 that that happened to people People exceeding $5 million a year. I'm just curious as to your thoughts on whether states should be doing this across the board in order to make up for budget shortfalls. You know, it's a really, really tough situation because uh, if they don't raise those taxes, the budget shortfalls are going to be horrible. And if they do raise the taxes, they're encouraging wealthy people to move out of the state. So, uh, you you know, New Jersey's got its issues but in new york city this is could this is potentially um uh ruinous for the city uh and 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 i think cuomo in new york at least is right to uh to oppose it mm. all right joe let's uh take a look at your column here but talk about this tiktok deal it's the most fascinating deal it seems like you know this is a government engineered transfer of assets that i just didn't think i'd ever see what's your take on it uh, everything about it is wrong. Everything. It shouldn't be happening. It's the kind of thing that happens in Russia, honestly. Um, you know, first of all, uh, the idea that you, you know, first of all, the president actually originally wanted to ban TikTok to punish China for the cor- coronavirus, which right. is ridiculous. So then he comes back and says, well, we have national security issues. Uh, they, could, they could wind up blackmailing federal employees with the data they're going to collect. Equally ridiculous. Um, you know, are there national security issues surrounding TikTok? I don't know. But the way you handle it is you don't wake up one morning and say, you know, you're going to be shut down in six weeks. That's just not how the world, that's not, that's not the, the way America is supposed to work. At least American capitalism is not supposed to work there. And then it turns out that the guy and the woman who are likely to get a deal with TikTok are the ones who are the president's buddies, which is the worst kind of crony capitalism the Republicans used to scream about when Obama was president. It's so strange, right, Joe, because it just came out of the blue that's not happening with any other country. Do you think it's reciprocity for the fact that China insists on U.S. companies having a local partner? I know I, that that would that would uh, <laughs> that would uh, that would imply that there's actually a, a method to the president's madness, and, and I don't I don't really think that's what's going on here. Um, I just think you know he saw an opportunity to whack China, and he decided to take it. So, what does it mean for a company like Oracle, Joe? I mean, this is a huge global company. Larry Ellison, one of the highest profile. Uh, you know, managers, executives in the world kind of playing this kind of game here. What's, what's kind of the takeaway? Well, you know, I think the takeaway really is if you, if you are an ally of this president, 
as a business person or as a business entity, you're going to you're going to get a lot of leeway. You're going to get to do things that maybe other companies can't do. Another really good example of this, um, which I find really quite appalling, is the way the antitrust department has become kind of a, a, a weaponized tool for the president to try and punish his enemies and, and, and help his friends. You know, the greatest example of this was when he tried to block when they tried to block the AT and T. Uh, the AT&T Time Warner deal because uh, because the president was so, uh, you know, because of CNN. And then he, he lets the Fox-Disney deal go right through, even though it had a lot larger antitrust implications because Rupert Murdoch was Trump's ally. And, you know, we've, we've almost become numb to this. This is what really bothers me. You know, this is not how American capitalism is supposed to work. It's just not. This is what they do in Russia. This is what they do in authoritarian governments, where you have to suck up to the leader to get what you want as a business person. And if you oppose the leader, he'll shut you down. That's what's happening here. And, and it's, it's happened enough now in America that we kind of, we don't, we don't even, we don't even blink. And, and to me, that, 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 to me, is the most troubling aspect of this deal. Yeah, I mean, it, it started off well at the very beginning of the presidency with, uh, you know, news conferences with people around boardroom tables and, you know, Mr. MyPillow and, and all of these companies that were just sort of plucked out of nowhere that were just being, you know, extolled by the president as, as, as the best companies in the world. Do you think that business leaders have a part to, to play in this, that they should have? I mean, after all, they're the bastions of capitalism. They're the the curators, right? Well, it's a, it's a little hard to know what they should do. I mean, I, I am offended that, that Larry Ellison, I mean, I feel like Larry Ellison and Safra Katz, who lead Oracle, have, you know, purposely sided with the president, knowing that it could benefit them financially, um, uh, which it has. But, but take a look at Amazon, for God's sake. I mean, this is one of the, <laughs> one of the most important companies in the country, and, um, you know, a, an engine of profit and an engine of jobs, and all Trump does is try to hammer it and try to punish it, because Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. And, and, you know, take a look at pharma. I mean, you've got to the point where the pharma companies have actually signed a collective pledge not to rush a vaccine if the science isn't there. I mean, you do, they, why are they doing that? They're doing that because people are afraid. People don't trust this president to do the right thing with the vaccine. So over and over and over, you see companies grappling with how to deal with this president. Um, uh, and, and, and it's hard. Joe, where's Congress in all of this? <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Congress is nowheresville, honestly. I mean, the Republicans have never, ever, ever tried to stop Trump from doing anything. And the Democrats don't have the power to, do, to, to, to stop it. I mean, what, what was surprised me on this deal in particular is that the Democrats haven't seen it for the crony capitalism that it is. Um, and, and have not really said anything. They've all, everybody's seeing it in terms of, you know, does TikTok pose a threat or not, instead of seeing it as, is this really the way American capitalism should work, um, uh, which I think should be a, a real focus of people, and, it, and it's just not. 
Hey, Joe, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Joe Nocera, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, giving us his thoughts on his recent column entitled Oracle TikTok Deal Pours Trump Toxin into Capitalism, really calling into question uh, kind of how this deal uh, came about, Vani, uh, you know, and uh, is that the way uh, that uh, U.S. commerce should be uh, dealt with? Yeah, and I mean, it's clearly not, right? But you have sort of somebody who, who touts himself as a businessman in the, president, uh, in the presidency. It might be something you might expect from, you know, a regular businessman. Is he a regular businessman anymore? I don't know. Right, exactly right. You know, one of the biggest uh, fallouts here economically from this pandemic has been the impact on small and mid-sized businesses. We've seen some large Fortune 500 corporations have plenty ready access to capital to weather the storm, but the concerns really are for some of these small and mid-sized businesses. Uh, we have Frank Sorrentino, Chief Executive Officer for Connect One Bank, uh, based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, uh, really dealing with these small and mid-sized businesses. So a great person to chat to and get a sense of what's going on out there. Frank, you're based in New Jersey. We just had New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy talk uh, and announce a tax increase on millionaires and offset in part by some uh, tax breaks for some middle-class households. Given that you do a lot of business in the state of New Jersey, you have a lot of clients in the state of New Jersey, how do you think the, what do you think the impact is going to be uh, for uh, the state of New Jersey? Well, uh, first off, thanks uh, for having me back on the show. But, you know, as from New Jersey's perspective, this constant refrain about let's tax the rich uh, certainly doesn't motivate people to want to invest more dollars in the state of New Jersey. And so I think we need to be very careful as a state what we try to promote here. We need our businesses to be successful. We need investment dollars coming into the state. We need people who feel there's going to be a friendlier environment as we move forward as opposed to one which is going to be more hostile to business, more hostile to those uh, who are wealthy and are affluent and who spend a lot of the money that gets spent and make the investments in the state. So I, I think the rhetoric, whether it comes to pass or not, uh, is, is dangerous uh, to some extent. What would it do to your base of deposits? Let's put it that way, Frank. Well, look, New Jersey geographically is located in the New York metro market area. And so New Jersey's had one of the highest tax rates in the nation. Uh, certainly, there are things that I think could be done that uh, would be better for the state, but we can't, we're not going to change the geography. And this is one of uh, the more vibrant areas of the country, notwithstanding you know, some of the things that have occurred here uh, through, because of the COVID virus over the last couple of months. It's still the New York City metro market. And so I believe this still will be strength in the market going forward. It's just a question of are we going to see. A, a, a recovery that's very strong or something that's a little bit more on the limp side. So, Frank, what are you, in fact, seeing from your customers out there? Are they uh, – how challenged is their business environment? Because you have a good view of the broad metro market. You know, it's a tale of two cities, right? There are those who are doing okay. There are those that are uh, doing well. Certain parts of the real estate market in uh, in and around the suburbs of New York City and New Jersey as part of that are benefiting from people not wanting to live in uh, the city proper. There are lots of small businesses, though, that are suffering. And a lot of the rush to deal with the COVID virus, while certainly – 
you know, was apropos when the virus first uh, reared its head in, in the February and March timeframe. We know so much more today. I think there's so much more that we could do to support those small businesses. They are suffering. There are a lot of arbitrary uh, regulations and laws. I, I mean, the last one that's pretty comical is, you know, why does a restaurant or a bar have to close at 12 o'clock? Does COVID know that at 12.01 it becomes more lethal? I don't understand. So there needs to be policies here that are promoting small businesses, especially the ones that are suffering. And it's the smallest ones that are having the toughest struggle. How easy is it for them to get a continuing line of credit with you and what kinds of things are you looking for that maybe you weren't looking for pre-pandemic? Look, we're always uh, looking at what did that business look like prior to the pandemic and at Connect One certainly uh, our, our emphasis is to try to help small businesses in every way we can. So those that were successful prior to the pandemic, we are able to look through what's happening today and hopefully the PPP loan that they received got them to this point and we can start to see uh, some light at the end of the tunnel. There are those, however, that were struggling prior to uh, the pandemic and so they're having a tough time accessing capital and there's not a whole lot out there for the smallest businesses uh, to be able to help them in any sort of stimulus. Frank, have you had to tighten your lending standards here, given the environment we're in, making that maybe even tougher for the small businesses? I wouldn't characterize uh, how we've looked at credit as a tightening. I think it's uh, been almost a self-fulfilling prophecy as we sit here today. Uh, Businesses are struggling. Cash flows are constrained. There are things that even under our normal uh, underwriting guidelines would, would, would constrict credit to a certain degree. And so I do think that is an issue. And we are taking the time and the effort. We've stood up an SBA lending uh, platform. We invested in a fintech called Bowfly to be able to help small businesses. Uh, so we're, we're taking, we're doing things that we believe will be able to help folks to get through this time. Uh, to take advantage of many of the other programs that might be out there, especially for small businesses. But the, the, the constraint of credit is real. Frank, thanks once again for always updating us. Frank Sorrentino is CEO of Connect One Bank, offices located both in New York and New Jersey. And you can only imagine how impacted all those offices and the business is from this pandemic really hitting the tri-state area so hard. Our thanks again to Frank. Well, one of many of the unfortunate uh, byproducts, economic byproducts of this pandemic has been once again just raising the income inequality, the wealth inequality in this country. A lot of folks are taking a look at this issue, including our next guest, Catherine Ann Edwards. She's a professor uh, at Pardee Rand Graduate School, uh, also an economist at the Rand Corporation based in Washington, D.C. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, income inequality, wealth inequality, a growing issue in this country for seemingly decades, perhaps exacerbated here by this pandemic. What did your work show? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, in my paper, which I did with a colleague at the Rand Corporation, we asked a simple question. What would income look like in the United States if incomes grew apace with the economy? So if GDP increases 2%, then income increases 2%. 
From the end of World War II until 1975, this was the case. This was the lived experience of the U.S. economy. And from the bottom to the top of the income distribution, income grew at a similar pace to GDP. But after 1975, this is when inequality and growth starts to emerge. And income at the bottom stalls, and it falls behind the pace of GDP growth, while incomes at the very top accelerated to the point where they outpace economic growth. So in the paper, we put numbers to that difference and find had income grown after 1975, like it did after World War II, the bottom 90% of earners would collectively be taking home more than $2.5 trillion in income today. And I think it's something that resonates with many, many, many families. What was, you know, a middle class existence has sort of disappeared. It used to be you could be a school teacher in a one career home and be able to afford a car and a home and children going to good schools and so on. Now, that's a very, that's very far from being a reality. So what did your study conclude? What were the conclusions? Well, what we aimed to do was look, you know, we were looking at consequence and less at cause, right? We didn't want to, we weren't trying to understand what has caused this distribution to be so Correct. unequal, but to be able to, to document the extent of it and what, what, uh, what, basically what's missing from the bottom. So, for example, you know, if a worker um, had the same income, uh, relative to economic growth in 2018, as they did in 1975, at the median, it's a difference of almost of $40,000 a year more uh, in earnings. I think the most important kind of foundation of our analysis is that we are not, you know, fabricating some scenario that's so unlikely that it doesn't really make sense. We're 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 basing this on. 30 years of observation of the U.S. economy in which they did grow in tandem. So, Catherine, from your study, what was kind of, what do you think is the main cause of income inequality? And I guess the follow-on corollary to that is, you know, can it be reversed? You know, again, we, we would like to study that using these new metrics that we identify, but we didn't in the paper. I think that, unfortunately, in the world around researching and measuring inequality, people will tell you whatever it is they already believe is the reason. And being able to say it's, it has to be because of X or it has to be because of Y, you know, we don't have the type of, you know, we don't have as strong of evidence as we would like, and people tend to just say what they already believe. So if you were to ask, you know, a conservative, they would say it's because we have too high of tax rates at the top or we have too much regulation on business, and that's why growth isn't shared. And if you were to ask a progressive, they would tell you it's because the minimum wage hasn't been increased since 2007, which was, fun fact, the year I graduated college, which is always <laughs> an interesting perspective for me because I just had a kid. So, you know, I think that's what makes this a really hard conversation is that, like you said, Bonnie, this is an experience that so many people can resonate with and understand, but the policy debate gets pretty fraught pretty quickly. Well, and it really was at the origin of the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Occupy Wall uh, movements generally around the world was income inequality. And of course, the great financial crisis brought it into stark relief. But it's not like people hadn't been experiencing it before then. So effectively, you now have 
observed this and, and put it in writing as you know a fact that since 1975 it's been digressing how do we move the dialogue forward you know we can't predict the future and we can't say listen all we have to do is x and the world will be better but i think that we do need to look at our economy at our spending and at our tax expenditures and ask you know what are we investing in and what kind of return are we getting because since 1975 we have not been getting a broadly shared growth and income that has not been the return so you know thinking creatively and reassessing policy has to be a part of it you know again it's it's unfortunate that so much of policymaking is about digging in and kind of like holding on white knuckled to what you already believe. But if we really want to address, you know, s- such a large and important and paramount issue in our economy, we have to just, you know, you have to go in with clear eyes, cold hearts and say what is working and what is not. All right, well, I, we are actually out of time, but we'd love to get you back on to talk a little more about this another time. And our thanks to you, Catherine, from the RAND Corporation. Fantastic study. We'll try and get our hands on a copy of that. Catherine Ann Edwards, professor at the Party RAND Graduate School. Let's welcome Marvin Lowe, senior global macro strategist at State Street Global Markets. Uh, he joins us here Marvin, you know, we're like seeing a little bit of a pullback in the marketplace today. I'd love to just get your thoughts on kind of what we're seeing today. Anything more than just meets the eye? Yeah, you know, I, I find it interesting that, um, you know, post-Fed, uh, which, uh, you know, for the most part delivered what people had expected, we're getting a flattening of the curve today, and we're getting kind of a broad pullback um, just in the equity markets. You know, there's no real growth value kind of story in it. There's no cyclical defensive story about it. Um, it's just it's just a pullback. So, kind of given the cautious tone that um, I think Chair Powell provided on the economy, I think people are questioning just how much longer um, you know the the uh, recent strength in, in the data is going to continue. I, I think there are some economic concerns that are creeping into the market here. What will the pivot be? Will it be to value stocks? Will it be out of stocks? Will it be out of the U.S.? You know, will people start keeping more in cash? Yeah, you know, I think valuations are a challenge in the U.S., um, so I think that there's going to be a pullback from that perspective. Um, but, you know, what we did hear was that rates, not only in the U.S., but, you know, for the most part within the developed world, is are going to remain at these rock-bottom levels for the extended period of time. So, um, you know, certainly once the dust settles, if you will, and, and there are a lot of things that are going to happen in the next couple of months between the elections, uh, between stimulus uh, or, you know, or lack thereof, um, but once that uh, dust settles t- settles down, I think that there's going to be a retreat. I think we have to think about EM, um, and I still think that you know ultimately with rates being as low as they are, you you still get pushed into the equity markets um, at various points in, in this kind of discussion. So, uh, Marvin, I guess the there's a, a number of things we're looking towards Washington, the election as you mentioned, but fiscal stimulus. I tell you, the odds don't look good that we're going to get anything in the near term. How much of a headwind is that? when if we don't get fiscal stimulus, the economic data is going to start getting a little dicey going forward. Yeah, I, I really do think it's a headwind. And I think when we kind of think about, um, you know, 21 and, you know, let's just put 2020 away as quickly yeah, as we can. Please. <laughs> but, but when we look at 21 and we look at kind of um, the amount of stimulus, you know, whether it's monetary and or fiscal, 
um, on both the, on both sides, you wind up looking, you wind up um, seeing less of it next year than we had this year, and I think that winds up being a headwind, even when we do get stimulus. And, and of course, you know today's uh, today's um, uh, jobs data, you know, showed stability, maybe some improvements depending on where you wanted to look at it. But there are still twenty something million people collecting um, uh, unemployment, and that's a massive number. So you are cross-asset and you have all sorts of experience in derivatives trades and, and all of the ways that you can hedge against everything from inflation to sort of, you know, retail trading. Are you doing any of that right now, Marvin? You know, cer- certainly certainly we are um, seeing a lot of interest of uh, volatility hedging around the elections and not necessarily just around election day, but um, after election day. And, and that kind of uh, to us uh, spells concerns around contested elections and, you know, a lot of the stories um, and concerns that, that have started to risen in terms of um, how long it's going to take before we actually have a um, – uh, have have uh, ultimately the the candidate that we know is going to be in the White House, um, and I think that that is one of the worst case scenarios to potentially come out of the election if it takes a while before we actually know who the next president is. Um, so you know, certainly hedging uh, hedging around that I think makes sense. Marvin, you know, we're talking about uh, interest rates lower for longer, lower forever, however you want to phrase it. And you mentioned emerging markets earlier. How do you you guys? How are you? thinking about emerging markets here you know from from a, from a real yield perspective and in an environment where again let's put 2020 to bed and and look at 21 look at 22 um rates in the developed world are going to be near zero uh, and or negative um for an extended period of time and from a growth profile perspective you know em still has those advantages and from a real yield perspective they're going to have that advantage so you know i, I do think um, you need to start thinking about which parts of um, the emerging economies you're most comfortable with. Does it depend on COVID and how it's being handled by the government? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and that's and, and that's why um, you know at this point um, you know a little bit more cautious around it. Um, you know, taking the time again to less let the dust settle, um, but but you know being ready for that moment when um, when there's a little bit more clarity. But yes, absolutely, the virus is still you know the the major uh, determinant to, to economic growth. All right, Marvin. So if if people are really starting to digest well what we've been hearing from Chairman Powell and the Fed over the last several weeks about lower interest rates, maybe even allowing inflation uh, to move higher. They're looking for yield. You mentioned emerging markets. Where else are you guys looking for returns and how much risk are you willing to take to, to get those returns? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're forced to take um, more risk. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, uh, you know, again, kind of short-term trading versus more of an intermediate-term outlook. Um, you know, I do think I do think that growth stocks still make sense um, because of the way uh, there are winners and losers, um, kind of from from this kind of uh, dislocated economic recovery that we're seeing. So uh, one has to think about it from that perspective, as well as you know div- dividends associated with that. I think credit has to be part of that discussion, and we're pushed further down. Um, the credit stack and, and further out in duration, just because there is a need for income, and then once again, kind of layering and uh, layering in that um, that emerging uh, discussion as as part of your portfolio is you know it certainly makes sense to me. Yeah, there's going to be a huge change next week, I believe, in one of the biggest credit indices. Will that affect you at all? 
Um, no, not really. You know, I, I mean, I, I think I think it's pretty I think it's pretty um, broadly um, known in the market at this point. And you know, those, those changes are um, you know they 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 generally occur on on an ongoing basis. So you know, we, we you evaluate it, you look at the changes, and then you make your adjustments. Very interesting, Marvin Lowe. Thank you so much. We appreciate that. Uh, very interesting, senior global macro strategist at Satri Global Markets. So, Vani, it's really a question here of how much risk. Uh, are you willing to take here in a basically a very low yielding market? Yeah, and how sophisticated are you? Obviously, the more sophisticated you are, the sort of more hedgy type yep. trades you can put on around whatever you know your your main trade is. Yeah, it's really interesting here. So it seems like again, as Chairman Powell has suggested, really since the. Uh, uh, Jackson Hole speech of a couple of weeks ago. This is a Fed uh, that is willing to let rates uh, stay lower for longer. I think we're hearing similar things out of other central banks, the ECB, Bank of Japan. Uh, so that suggests a very low-yielding world market that calls into question that 60-40 allocation of a typical uh, portfolio. People need to get creative. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.